theyeshiva.net. American Spectator. The editor-in-chief of that publication is a man, a Jewish fellow named Dr. J. Hamnick. He once related the following story that occurred with his father, who was a preeminent, a well-known psychologist. He said, my father once attended a public lecture by a famous student of Dr. Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud, or Schleimler Freud was his real name. (laughs) The father of, uh, called the father of psychoanalysis, died in 1939. And Dr. Freud had a famous student whose name was Dr. Reich. Dr. Reich once gave a public lecture and Jay Homnick's dad, a psychologist, attended, attended the lecture. The presentation was to grapple with a particular question. The question was that every major culture and religion in the world has in its historical records something similar to the story of the Mabel something similar to the biblical flood story. All of the cultures recount a story in which a flood swept away, drowned much of civilization and humanity. And a few survivors remained and rebuilt rebuilt civilization. Dr. Reich wondered, Freud's student, grappled with the question, why is it that every culture has this myth in its, in its history somewhere. So he hypothesized that there is a deep-seated fear in humanity that we're all going to be destroyed. People instinctively have a terrible fear that they will die and the world will come to an end. There's a fear of global annihilation. And he says as a result of that, people project backwards to fashion a mythology in which the fear actually played itself out. That's how we deal psychologically with our own fears and insecurities. So this myth is a mirror of an inherent human insecurity. And that's why every culture created this myth. Dr. Reich explained in the lecture, there was a flood, it consumed the earth, it was, a, it was a projection of our collective sense of, un, of uncertainty, of insecurity. And that's why he said, from the Bible to many other works, there's always a flood somewhere in the story. Dr. Hamnick raised his hand and he said, may I say something? Sure. Says, may I offer an alternative solution to the mystery why the Bible and each culture tells the story about a flood that happened. Another explanation. Dr. Reich says, sure, go ahead. What is it? 
And Dr. Hamnick says, perhaps the reason is because there was a flood. <laughs> Maybe they tell the story because the story happened. This is what he described, his father said. A tremor of shock rippled through the assembly of mental health professionals. The ineffable has been uttered. Those words that no rational person ought to ever say has been brought up on the lips of this heretical believer in ancient fables. It was as though, as Dr. Hamnick said something unthinkable, the worst thing you could say in the presence of sophisticated minds. The room became silent, and the disciple of Freud looked at Dr. Hamnick, and he said, My teacher, Sigmund Freud, told us, we will never know who is stronger, the polar bear or the tiger. You know why? Because they can't live in each other's climate, so they can never meet to fight it out and determine who's stronger. You and I, he said, are the polar bear and the tiger. We don't live in the same climate. In my world, the possibility that a flood occurred cannot be considered. We don't live on the same plane. We don't live in the same climate. I begin with this story because I believe it captures very much the belief or the feeling of many people. And today, in our series on the basics of Jewish, of Amunah, of Jewish faith, we want to address this question. Is the idea, the belief, that Torah is what we call Torah ben Hashemayim, one of the fundamental principles of Jewish faith, that Torah is the word of God, dictated to Moshe Rabbeinu thousands of years ago, if it's rational, if it's logical, if it makes sense, if there's evidence for it. Or, as somebody wrote to me, in an email which the people have sent, you could send questions to emuna at the yeshiva.net, somebody wrote, he said, in your early classes you raised very good questions. Is our faith entirely blind, illogical, or is there any rationale to it? Yet, you immediately moved over to fluff and emotions, obviously proving that there's no intellectual, rational basis for it. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, the Jewish religion is as absurd as any other of the 15,000 recorded religions in human history. It is arrogant of any person to think that two and a half billion Christians don't know what they're talking about. One and a half billion Muslims don't know what they're talking about. Most Jews don't know what they're talking about. But a few Jews, they know the truth. This is not logical. This is absolute blind faith that some of you received from your parents, which I also received from my parents, but now I have matured to know better. Okay, my dear friend. And similar questions like this, similar emails like this. So, <laughs> here's the deal. 
I don't believe anybody can prove anything, anything to anybody. As I mentioned to you in one of the classes, most people believe what they want to believe. Most people believe what they're comfortable believing. We are not computers whose behavior and ideas are dictated exclusively by cold logic. We all know from our personal lives, emotions, sentiments, personal experiences, pain, agony, happiness, dictate far more of our perspectives and our behavior than cold rationality. At least for many people, perhaps for most people. So ultimately, people choose what they want to believe. And it has a lot to do with what they want to believe. Besides the fact we discussed this in the previous class, number two of Basics of Emunah, from a Jewish perspective, every Jew really believes. When you understand what belief is, which we discussed that I'm not going to get into tonight, Emunah is an inherent state of the Jewish soul. What I wanted to address tonight is something else. Many open-minded, sophisticated people consider the idea that Torah is divine, Torah is min hashamayim, as ridiculous, absurd, irrational. It's blind faith. And some people choose to believe it for whatever reason. Makes them feel good. Indoctrination, that's how they were raised. If they were raised in a different home, of course they would believe otherwise. But that's, that's also arrogant. Because you have scholarly people, you have rational people, you have open-minded people. And yet, in full, with full clarity and conviction, they will state that to accept Torah as truly divine is irrational. It's absurd. It's childlike. It's primitive. It's cult-like. It doesn't make sense. It's ridiculous. It requires suspension of cool thinking. To convince people that certain events happened, that's a separate story. It's not my job. What I think is important to demonstrate is that it's primitive and irrational for somebody to say that to accept Torah is divine, that person is in a cult, willingly or unwillingly. You don't want to accept it? Okay. You're on a journey, and make sure you continue your search, because you still have way to go, like all of us. But to declare that it's the epitome of stupidity? That is the epitome of stupidity. That is the embodiment of closed-mindedness. You don't have to be closed-minded to accept. Let's remember, for hundreds of generations, every Jew living today can trace, go back, three, four at most five or six generations, and they will find that their grandparents believed with all their heart and soul that Torah was divine. Any single Jew living today goes back a few generations, even if they claim not to accept it. And their grandparents maintained that and taught it to their children. The transformation in the Jewish world happened within the last two and a half centuries, not before. So for 3,000 years... Every generation of Jews, the majority of Jews, accepted this idea that Torah is divine. It's arrogant to say that all of these Jews, including all of their own grandparents, were all absolutely indoctrinated, irrational people, who really were not open-minded, who never thought about it. They didn't even know what critical thinking is. I find that to be quite arrogant. Disagree, fine, argue. But this dismissal 
is really unfounded. It's not, it's, not, it's not a person who's really searching for truth and is open to any conclusion, even if they might argue another point. And uh, I don't think one has to conclude that Moshe uh, Rabbeinu, Yirmiyah Hanavi, Shmuel Hanavi, Yecheskel Hanavi, Ezra Seifer, Hillel, Shammai, Shmayav, Talian, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Ashi, Rabbi Sadiagoyin, Rabbeinu Gershom, Rambam, Rashi, Rabbi Yosef Karo, Noida Behuda, Arizach, Sam Seifer, Vilna Gon, Balatanya, Chafetz Chaim, were all absolutely closed-minded, irrational people who never asked the basic questions, maybe I have been taught a lie. May I have been taught another myth from my brother, from my grandmother. So, let's begin. As an introduction, I want to put it in context. I, this disappeared. Oh, okay. I came across, some time ago, an article written by a fellow. His name, Dr. Gordon Zacks. He passed away not long ago. He lived in Columbus, Ohio. He was a very wealthy Jewish businessman and a great activist on behalf of the Jewish Federation for many decades. He was a wise man, a scholar, an activist, a klaltur, very involved in the fears of the Jewish community and Israel from the perspective of the, the issues that the Jewish Federation deals with. He wrote a book on autobiography that somebody sent to me a number of years ago he passed away not long ago, as I mentioned. And Dr. Zacks, in this autobiography, recounts a lovely conversation he had with a great man. And when I read it, it stuck with me because I thought there was an absolutely marvelous way of expressing such a profound and, and, and really meaningful truth that I want to use as an introduction. It was January 1970. That means winter of Tavshin Lamed in the Hebrew calendar. Dr. Gordon Zacks flew from Columbus to New York, or drove, and he went to visit the Lubavitcher Rebbe in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn at an appointment around 12 midnight. He transcribes in his autobiography, he dedicates a chapter to the conversation. A long, elaborate, and absolutely fascinating conversation. I found it today and called out, called, collected a few excerpts of the conversation. These are the words of Dr. Zacks, who writes what happened to him, his conversation. He says, Lubavitcher Rebbe turned to him in the middle of the conversation after a discussion about Judaism, the Jewish future, uh, Jewish education. Do you believe in revelation, which means in Mount Sinai, Torah and Hashemayim, God revealed himself, Mr. Zacks, he asked me next. So Zacks says, I believe in God. I believe he inspires, but I don't believe he writes, I answered. In other words, God exists. God could sometimes give people inspiration, but to say that he wrote a book called Torah that uh, I absolutely do not believe. You mean, Mr. Zacks, that there is this vast structure, this is the Lubavitcher Rebbe talking, there is this vast structure God has created of plants, animals, food chains, stars and planets, that the only creature in all of creation that doesn't understand how to fit in and live their life purposefully is the human. In other words, what he's telling him is, when you study the world, everything, every nuance, every detail, 
in chemistry, biology, cosmology, physics. Every nuance is programmed to live according to a purposeful plan that will, first of all, allow it to preserve, allow it to reproduce, and enhance also the environment. Every plant, every flower, every insect, every animal, etc. The only one who doesn't understand how to fit in what his purpose is is man, according to you. I told him, I told Lubavitcher Rebbe, yes, that's what I believe. What about the complexity of the human body? What about the jewel of the human cell? How does the body ingest food and renew itself with absolute consistency? What he's asking him is, did you ever study the jewel, beautiful expression, the jewel of the human cell? Of course, they used to think, even after they discovered the cell, that the cell is basically a jello. It's not such a complex entity. And that's why Darwinism made a little more sense that the cell just happened to mutate and ultimately develop into all of the organisms that we know today. Yet, in our generation, it's a little bit harder. You have to have a little more amuna to embrace Darwinism because when you study one cell in the human body, you know that in the nucleus of a cell, now a cell is probably the tenth, the size of a cell is probably the tenth, tenth of the head of a needle. You take the head of a needle, you divide it in ten, that's probably the size of the cell. And within that cell, within that cell, you have three billion units of DNA. Three billion units of DNA which basically are like a micro, are like a computer code, a programmer's code, that describe the entire function and structure of the cell. And then each cell reproduces that DNA. So now this is not one cell. The body has 30, 40, 50 trillion cells, not million, not billion. And each cell has the 3 billion units of DNA organized systematically and brilliantly and impeccably. Now if I were to tell you, if I were to tell you that uh, billions and billions and billions of bottles of ink spilled out, they spilled, and they form one of them, of course they made a huge mess beyond what I can describe. But from all of these bottles of ink that fell, one of them managed to create the shape of the letter Yud. It's not such, okay. One of them made a Yud. But then another one from all of them managed to make a Vav, and the Vav is right near the Yud. Right near the, and it didn't erase the Yud. And right near that came a Samach, and then a Fay, which happens to be my first name. And you know. How difficult, if somebody would say this, this is how the name was written, not because an intelligent person wrote it, or an intelligent mind wrote it. It happened, you'd say it's quite, quite unlikely. If you would put monkeys on typewriters, how old is the cosmos according to the largest theories? 15 billion years, 16 billion years. They tried it in Britain, if you would put monkeys on typewriters for billions of years to type, could Shakespeare's play Hamlet be, come out? And this is one play. And I'm talking about three billion units of organized code in one cell of 30 trillion cells in one body. One body. 
This is what the Rebbe means. I'm trying to explain the word, jewel of the human cell. Don't take these words for granted. <laughs> How does the body ingest food and renew itself with absolute consistency? I had no answer. Why, Mr. Zacks, is the nose always where the nose belongs? Why are the eyes always on the face for generation after generation? Why did it never happen that the eye ends up on a knee? The nose ends up on a toe? It's all by mistake, remember. The theory is it's all by mistake. It's all random. It all happens random. Generation after generation. Two eyes right near each other, and it's all random. Why, Mr. Zacks? He says, I could only shrug my shoulders, but my respect for him deepened by the moment. And how can you account for the brain and the mind? How do they steer this remarkable system in a purposeful and precise way? The brain has a hundred billion neurons that are connected to each other. It makes a hundred million decisions every moment. And what about how we fit into the Earth's ecosystem where we inhale the oxygen that plants so wonderfully manufacture for us? Could this all be accidental? Here he's going into a whole other area. The leaves, you go to a plant, we look at a leaf, we take it for granted. But that leaf was designed in a way to absorb the carbon dioxide that we emit that's so dangerous that would destroy life and then manufactures it into wonderful oxygen that we inhale. And the plant knows all of this with a perfect symmetry and balance. All accidental. How could I answer him? And beyond what happens on earth, what about all the heavenly bodies in the sky that seem to follow such a perfect order and don't collide with each other? Is man the only creature on the planet earth without guidelines for living its life? We are the only one that we're only one without guidelines. Should man ignore the Torah given to us by God as a roadmap to guide us? This is the missing link which connects us to the complexity of nature. So it went, comment after comment, more times than not, I could not begin to answer his points. Let me send you a teacher. Now here's Lubavitcher Rebbe. Let me send you a teacher to live with you for a year and teach you how to be Jewish. You will unleash a whole new dimension to your life. If you really want to change the world, he wanted to change the world, change yourself. It's like dropping a stone into a pool of water and watching the concentric circles radiate to the shore. You will influence all the people around you and they will influence others in turn. That's how you bring about improvement in the world. Rebbe, I'm not ready to do that, I told him. I remained firm despite the incredibly woven tapestry of the universe he presented to me. What do you have to lose, he asked. One year of your life. What if I'm right? It could gain you an eternity if I'm right, but only cost you one year if I'm wrong. I'll think about it, I said, as we wrapped up our hour and a half conversation. The normal audience with the Rebbe was 30 seconds to a minute. 300 people were still waiting to come in at one in the morning. He didn't accept. He didn't accept the Rebbe's offer, but 40 years later, he wrote about the conversation. Now, the concept that's being made here is very, very fascinating. Let's think about it. A bee knows exactly what to do. An ant knows exactly how to behave from the second it emerges into our planet until its death. Every single creature, organic and inorganic, is pre-programmed. 
in this whole huge universe, there's only one creature there's one creature you say, who are you? I don't know. Why am I here? I'm not sure. I'm, I have an appointment by the therapist tomorrow. <laughs> What's the purpose? What's the meaning? Why are we alive? What is the meaning of life? Where am I coming? Where am I going? I don't know. We don't know. We are the only ones left clueless. So it's a fascinating thing. The whole world is planned impeccably, flawlessly. And the more science, physics, biology, chemistry, one dis- cosmology, one discovers, one sees the incredible, fine, fu- the incredible uh, factors that demonstrate how fine-tuned our planet and our universe is to be able to exist, even if there's a lot of things incomprehensible, to the point that sti- scientists who are invested in atheism had to invent a theory. And you know what the theory is? It's called parallel universes. They claim that in addition to our universe, there must be billions, trillions of other universes where all the mistakes happened. Where the ink just went all over the place and they didn't create letters. Because how do you explain from one universe that's perfect, there must be endless other universes where it's chaos. Imagine that doesn't take a muna. <laughs> that's rational. They invented universes just to be able to say that this is a mistake. This you could read up. It's not my chedushim. So the only one who doesn't know if he's coming or going is the human being. Here is how Jews, how Judaism understands the function of Torah. As he put it, of course, using a scientific term, the missing link. The missing link. What was the term? This is the missing link which connects us to the complexity of nature. In other words, in other words, Torah on one level could be understood simply as a manufacturer's manual for the human being who doesn't have such a manual encoded in his or her DNA, at least that we are conscious. It is encoded, but we're not consciously aware of it. Everybody understands you know, people ask, Torah is repressive, Torah is dogmatic, the mitzvah is like, I can't deal with them. But I ask you a question. You buy a laptop, you buy an iPhone. If you can convince your mother. And you come home, it comes with a manual. And you open up the manual, and the manual says, don't put it in these places, don't put it in a place where it's too hot or it's too cold. Don't keep it in your car, don't keep it on the radiator, don't keep it on the steam, don't keep it under your blanket. And you turn to your mother and you say, who does he think he is? He's going to run my life and tell me what to do. It's my iPhone. I do what I want. The manufacturer wants to help you optimize the machine. They want you should gain maximum benefit and longevity out of it. The one who designed it, Steve Jobs, whoever designed it, he knows his product from inside. So he's giving you a manual to understand, number one, what is this? What is the nature of this little toy, of this creature? Let me tell you what it is. Let me tell you what its function is. Let me tell you what it can do. Let me tell you what its purpose is. Let me tell you what to do and what not to do in order to optimize this machine. In this sense, you, the human being in this world, without a manual, without a blueprint, is the only one. Look at the ant and get jealous. Look at the bee, a nesach of the hearts. 
The bee never has an issue. The flower never has an issue knowing how to attract the bee in order to get the nectar and give it and make sure it gets pollinated so that the female and male come together to reproduce new flowers, new plants. And man is lost. So there's a guide, there's a manual from the ultimate manufacturer with directions, with guidelines, positive and negative for one purpose. It's the missing link between the human being and the whole tapestry, the mystery, the incredible infinite depth in one cell, in one atom, one molecule, one subatomic particle of numbers that we can't even count that make up, make up our amazing universe. This is to put it in context. What we mean when we say Torah is menashamayim. Torah is from God. That there was a manual given to the one element of the universe that is clueless. <laughs> that doesn't know what's going on without direction. Granted, even if somebody can accept this. And you see here a classic example. Gordon Zach says, I'm impressed with him. I love what he's saying. I don't have what to answer. But from this, the behavior is a different story. We're emotional beings. You can't expect a person to change around the philosophy within a few minutes. We're not rational computers. It's a classic example of this. He writes about the conversation with pride and dignity. And he continues. This I saw a video of. He came back 19 years later. 1989 to visit the Lubavitcher Rebbe. 1979. This I saw a video of. He comes in. He comes in and he walks by and the Rebbe looks at him and says, you remember during our last conversation? And he starts repeating to him what they spoke about in 1970. So Zach looks at him and says, Rabbi, you're amazing. He says, what are the Jewish people going to gain from the fact that I'm amazing? What's necessary is that you should get involved in Jewish education. So... People are complex, no question about it. But let's say somebody can relate to this and, and even, I don't know, agree with it, but at least appreciate the perspective. The question is, to who did God give this manual? To whom? Hundreds of religions in the world, thousands of religions throughout history. I mentioned almost 15,000 recorded religions. To whom? How does one know? And how can the Jewish people come and say, this is it? And as Gordon Zach says, God exists, God inspires, but does actually, does actually God write this Torah that I'm holding? This comes from the creator of the world. So what we want to do is, of course, play, as they call it in English, devil's advocate. And uh, ask that question honestly from a very ra- logical and rational point of view. We are speaking to the skeptic or to the person who wants to know, the, inqu- the inquisitive person who wants to know. He says, Rabbi, you're a nice fellow perhaps, but it's hard for me to accept, to maintain, to teach my child. Uh, I got an email yesterday from a young man. He had a child and he says he lives in a religious community. He doesn't believe diddly squat of Judaism. And he, do- oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Huh? He has a baby. The baby is, is young, but he soon has to put his baby into school. He says, in good faith, how am I supposed to teach my child something I absolutely don't believe in? And if I tell my child what I think, my wife is going to get upset. And uh, it's going to be problematic. 
is a rational person, inquisitive person, wants to know. So let's assume to play this, to, to, to ask this question. Torah is like any other book. There's a New Testament that the Christian believe is God's word. There's a Quran that a billion and a half Muslims believe is God's word. And some of them are ready to blow themselves up for it and go meet, get 72 pies of pizza. And then there are other hundreds and hundreds and thousands of religious sects today and for thousands of years. So Torah is another book, very interesting book, a very influential book, no question. <laughs> the bestseller, there's no book that sold as many copies in the history of humanity as the Bible. There's no question about that. No book that comes close to it certainly had an impact. But it was created by a man, we're going to call him Moses Jefferson. Moshele Jefferson. I think would be a good name for our, uh, our so-called author. Okay, so now there are three possibilities. Possibility number one is, which is the normal person who asks this question is, how did it happen? How did it happen? He says, what, how did Christianity happen? One day Moses Jefferson emerged. He was a wise fellow. And he decided he wants to start a religion. We're again assuming this perspective that it's fabricated by a human being. It didn't happen. No, you'd see us, Mitzrayim, Matan, Torah, Maimad, Arsinai, God revealed himself. Moses Jefferson at some point, 500 years later, 1,000 years later, according to the Bible critics, they like saying it was around 2,600 years ago. So apparently, if Matan, Torah was 3,300 years ago, this is a few hundred years later. Around 2,600 years ago, Moses Jefferson or Moses Finkelstein, or you could call him Jacobson if you want, came and, as long as you give me royalties, came and decided I'm inventing a religion. A religion needs a book. God spoke. He wrote a book. He was a charismatic fellow, no question. He wrote in a book that he didn't know how to speak. But he was a very charismatic fellow. That's just part of the game. Or maybe he didn't write it. Maybe, he, of course, he wrote writing about somebody else. So actually he could speak. Whatever the situation is, he was extremely charismatic, influential. However, we don't exactly know. And he got a group around him to call themselves the Jews. And they began believing it. They embraced it as the word of God. And the rest is history. And here you are tonight, Davini Meirev. And coming to figure this out. That's one perspective. Another perspective is, it was actually that generation. That actual generation, when we say it happened, that generation had a leader who made up a religion. It wasn't happened a thousand years later, and he said a thousand years ago a religion was founded. It happened right then, and it was fabricated. With all these nice fairy tales and nice stories. A third op- option is, or somebody wrote to me, no. Some of it was created in that generation, and then it evolved. Every generation added, Hagaz v'ha'ariz v'chidushim. Each one added another story. This one decided to put in a Kairach story. Everyone added another story. And over six, seven, eight hundred years, they developed, they decided it's time to canonize, to seal it, and we're good to go. These are three perspectives. Obviously, seem rational. After all, after all, you're saying this about other thousands of religions and their books. But let's remember something. What, cannot, what can't we dispute? What is beyond debate? Let's not talk about what can be disputed. What cannot be disputed? What cannot be disputed is the fact 
that historically speaking, for more than 2,000 years, in an uninterrupted chain, there have been in every single generation at least one million Jews who embraced the notion that Matan Torah happened, that God revealed himself to the Jewish people and gave them the Torah. They heard the Ten Commandments, he chose Moshe as his prophet and so forth. That tradition goes back, we know historically, we have 50 years ago, there were a million Jews who believed in Tyre and heaven. A little more than a million Jews. A hundred years ago, I'm just saying a million minimum, really more. A hundred years ago, we know there were a million Jews who believed in Tyre and Hashemayim, yeah. Two hundred years ago, yeah, we know them by name. We know many of them by names. Three hundred, four hundred, five hundred, it's all clear. A thousand years, of course we know. And you can go back two thousand years, that's the time. Before Churban Bayashenia, you can go back another few hundred years. Not from Jewish history books. From non-Jewish history books, the Greeks started to hold historical records. Towards the end of the Second Temple, history became more of a reality than previously. The Beis Hamikdash was destroyed 1900 years ago. You go back, we have more than 2,000 years, uninterrupted chain of at least 1 million Jews who embraced the notion that the Torah is the Word of God. That's a fact. That nobody can dispute. The question is, were they brainwashed? Were they indoctrinated? Is it a myth? But that fact, nobody can dispute. It didn't start in 2016 or in 1916 or even in 1716. Now we're saying, at some point, let's say 2400 years ago, 2600 years ago or earlier, somebody fabricated it. Here is the issue. And this is a serious issue for an intelligent person, which would not exist in any other religion. And that is, this quote-unquote fabricated document according to the person who is questioning, writes, not once, but many, many, many times, this document that the author claimed is the word of God, maintains that this God, the creator of the world, revealed himself not to one person, or two people, or three people, in a cave, in a desert, in a closet, on top of a mountain. But actually, to every Jew alive, with numbers, males between 20 and 60, 600,000. At least an equal amount of females. That's 1.2 million. Plus minors, plus senior citizens, plus Erev Rav, the Egyptians that joined them, you have easily approximately three or more million people. In other words, this document claims that three million human beings, all, all, saw, heard, experienced in their very being the presence of Hashem, the presence of the Creator of the world, who revealed Himself, who spoke to them, who gave them the Ten Commandments and declared Moshe as His prophet, which is the basis of the whole Torah. And then Moshe teaches them the rest of the Torah, but they already know from God that Moses is a prophet. They don't have to believe Moshe Rabbeinu. Now, this document claims, this document which has been fabricated claims this, and the Jews accepted it at some point, we know this, and started to teach it to their children and grandchildren at least for 2,000 years, until this very day. You heard it from your mother, 
I heard it from my mother, you heard it from your father, from your grandfather, and so on and so forth. Now let's ask a question. If I declare to you tonight, I stand up and I say, it's 9.49 p.m. I was waiting, but I have to share with you that last night at 9.49 p.m., I came out of 7-Eleven. I got into the car and I had a revelation. The creator of heaven and earth revealed himself to me. And he said, Rabbi YY, henceforth you are my prophet. You are the last prophet who will steal all the prophets. I'm quoting Muhammad. (laughs) You will be the final prophet. And this is what I command, X, Y, Z. The first thing is, tell the entire community in 18 for Shea that they should empty out their wallets <laughs> and give it to you so that you should fulfill the word of God. Now, you may look at me. You may say, as Meshuggah Gevaran, the guy is crazy. You may say the guy is a liar. He's a freaking liar. You may say he's delusional. You may say he's all of them together. But you know what? Maybe there'll be one, two, or three people, especially if I don't smile. And I do a better presentation, and I prepare a little better for it. And I give it more thought with some good backdrops. So you know what? Efshefart. Maybe, especially if you're desperate, especially if you're needy, especially if you're brokenhearted, especially if you like me. <laughs> Whatever. And then I can, you can come over to me after. We build a little, we build a little chabura. We grow on it, and that's what happens. And we write it up, and we create a following. And maybe I'll even preach nice things in the name of God. You shouldn't kill yourself. You shouldn't kill other people. You should be nice. Sure. 500 years from now, it's the word of God. In fact, there's a guy, his name is Joseph. His last name was Smith. Joseph Smith in 1820 said he met God. And God told him that all the other churches were counterfeit. And he started what's known today as the Mormon religion. One of the most powerful sects of Christianity. Christianity has dozens, maybe hundreds of sects. This is Joseph Smith. Can you say he's a liar? I wasn't there. I could say he's a liar. I could say he's crazy. I could say he's honest. Same if I tell this to you. But what happens if I say something else? I stand up here and I don't say last night God revealed himself to me. I say, all of you know that last night at 9.49 God revealed himself to each and every single one of you. And your spouses, and your parents, and your siblings, and your children, and your first, second, third cousins, and another two million Jews. Call them, text them, ask them right now. And he told all of you to accept me as the prophet. Now, unless you're completely insane, not one person in the crowd can give credibility to this person. Why? Why? You know for sure I'm a liar. Why do you know for sure I'm a liar? I'm not telling you what happened to me. I'm telling you what happened to you and to you and to you. You know it never happened to you. This is one of the key distinctions between Judaism and every other religion in the history of humanity, and it's absolutely fascinating. Not one other religion begins with mass 
testimony or a mass experience. And there's a reason for it. So now let's go back to our hypothesis. Moses Jefferson writes a book. He gets his people. Yoshka had his disciples. Muhammad had his disciples. Buddha had his disciples. Smith had his disciples. And every religious leader had his disciples who embraced it and taught it and created a religion, sometimes great and powerful and extremely influential like Christianity and Islam. This Jew, whoever he was, fabricates this Torah. He comes to his Jews, to his people. However he reaches them, five people, ten people, a hundred people, five thousand people, twenty thousand people. And he says, I found a book. I found a book. He doesn't say he fabricated it. Or I wrote a book dictated by God. Wow, wow, what does it say? They open up the book. They start reading. They start reading what it says in the book. So here... I didn't want to quote so much, but I quoted a few. We'll have it right here. Oh, wow. They start reading. Look together. They're reading with Moses Jefferson. I'm coming to you in the thickness of the cloud. The people will hear as I speak to you, and they will also believe in you forever. And then he tells them, he says, this Moshe tells them, this is this week, Yisrael. And then, God spoke to you. He told you about the covenant that he wants you to make with him and he transcribed the Ten Commandments. He engraved them on tablets of stone. Now, these are just two psukim from hundreds. But what else does it say? All the people were there. Everybody saw it. And he told you, teach it to your children. Make a seder every year and tell the story. Remember the exodus of Egypt every single day of your life. Never forget this moment. Give it over to your children and grandchildren. In not one, not ten, hundreds of verses, which in different ways and different fashions tell this nation, you're mine, you're my people, we made a constitution together, now transmit it. They all turn, if you were that Jew, you turn to this Mr. Jefferson, and you say, wow, interesting, I just have one question. I have one simple question. When was this book written? God dictated it now? Nah, he couldn't have dictated it now because it says a story about a whole nation that went out of Egypt. He said, no, God dictated to me now a story that happened then or I found a book that God dictated then or I came back again. And whatever the story is. They say, one second. <laughs> if this is true, we have one question. And the question is, why did not one of us ever hear about this from their father, their mother, their Baba, their Zayda. Ever. Moshe, you want to make up a book? Do it smart. You want to be a charlatan? Do it with Seichel. Say, God came to me. You're done. 
He says, God came to all three million Jews were told to give it to them. Nobody ever heard the story. Nobody ever heard the story. You're a lawyer. Get out of here. He's not telling them about what happened to him. He's telling them what happened to their forefathers for generations ago. In every other religion, it starts off with one person. So now, let's go back to the first generation. You know what? Okay. They can't accept it as a new book because it doesn't make sense. They can't accept it. What? Oh. Okay. I'm not telling you it's a prophecy. (laughs) So imagine, just think about it. If you're the Jew, Moshe comes over to you or this author, he gives you a book that was there and he really wrote it or his grandfather wrote it. How could people accept this? It's clearly that he is saying a lie. Now go back to the first generation. Say it was fabricated. The people themselves fabricated it. This would require a fascinating idea. And that is, three million people made a conspiracy. They conspired to create a historic lie. It's not one man invented a lie and shared it with people who chose to believe him. Three million people consciously knew there's a lie, they embraced the lie, they teach it to their children, they know it's a lie, because they know God did not reveal himself to each and every one of them, and yet, they don't argue, they don't debate it, nobody shares the real story. There's an old expression in English, and that is, three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. Here, millions of people keep a secret that this never happened, and yet they give it over to their children until today, thousands of years, millions of Jews have been giving it over with the same version, even though the first generation, of course, knew it never happened because Moshe did not speak about himself. He spoke about them. It's hard to find today 10 Jews to agree on something that happened. I don't know 10 Jews who agree about what food there should be at a shir. Ten Jews who agree the color of cheers that should be in a shul. But three million Jews conspired to create a story that never happened. And what type of conspiracy was this? Okay, we don't have in history one instance of millions of people consciously knowing that it's a lie, conspiring together to invent the lie, and we say it's a lie. Every story of history, how do we know what happened? How do you know Napoleon lived? You never saw Napoleon Bonaparte. How do you know George Washington lived? How do you know there was a First World War? Nobody in their right mind doubts that Napoleon lived. Or George Washington lived. Or there was a First World War. Nobody doubts it. Why? You were never there. Your parents also never saw Napoleon. And the answer is every rational person believes it because there are many witnesses who saw him. There's many texts from the time, many manuscripts, paintings, records from different people. But you don't have a single event in history that has three million witnesses who all said the same story. People lie. A person could lie. Not a question. Millions of people, even a thousand people to make up a lie is hard to believe. Some people say that NASA never went to the moon. Apollo 11 never happened. There was a production in California Right? 
But most normal people don't believe it. Why? You were on the moon. You were there when the spaceship took off in 1969. But there's enough witnesses. There would have to be too many people conspiring together to create such a lie. It's irrational. Even Germany, take Germany, they accused the Jews in the worst crimes and in sabotaging Germany during the First World War. Germany was defeated because of the Jews. But they never said, Jews lie down in front of German tanks and didn't let them go out. They knew people won't accept it. What are Jews accused of? Poisoning wells. Go see. Go figure. Killing Christian babies and hiding them. Backstabbing Germany. Back, not frontstabbing. Because throughout history we know. The fact is, we know even today. And unless we believe that human nature has been transformed, to get a hundred thousand people to make up a lie together is highly, highly improbable. I'm not going to say impossible. The word impossible is very hard to, to use. But highly, highly improbable. Three million people, and who, Jews? We know Jews. Some of us know Jews very well. And it didn't start today. Learn Jewish history. The levels of differences, argumentation, conflicts, individuality, my God. Three Jews, 19 opinions. And they all conspired. Now I ask you even more. What, do they, what did they conspire for? Three million came to this Moses and said, Moshe, let's make up a story. Let's make it up. Okay, what? God spoke to us. He told us, you're the chosen people. Take over the world. You can rob all the banks in the world. Everything is yours. Ken Heron, I hear. What did they conspire to? The God of the universe told them and said, you're not allowed to eat most foods. <laughs> Number one, most intimate relations are limited. One day a week, no work, no animals. Six years, you liberate all your slaves. Slavery was the cornerstone of the ancient world. On Shabbos, the slave and the master are equal. Every day, tefillin, mezuzah on every door, Krishna, Yitzhiyas, Mitzrayim. Every detail of your life is restricted. So they conspired to create a miserable life for themselves based on fabrication. You could believe it. I can't tell you you can't believe it. But don't say that if somebody questions that and says, you know what? This might have happened. <laughs> this might have happened. It's quite logical. In fact, that's how we verify any historical event. That explains a very simple question. It answers a very simple question. Why, did no, why does no other religion have such a story? It's the best story. Christianity came to the world and said, Judaism has been nullified. God made a new covenant, a new testament. One second. They wanted the Jews so badly. The fact that the Jews rejected Christianity was the greatest smack in the face of the Christians, and they, they never forgave us for it. And the same is true with Islam, because Islam and Christianity are both children of Judaism. And when the mother rejects the child, there's nothing as painful. That's why you have to understand Christian and Islamic anti-Semitism. When your own mother says, 
You're a liar. It's very painful. The best. Now Jews had a very simple question. Reb Muhammad, Reb Muhammad, you're a nice fellow. Yashkila, you may be a very nice guy. I just have one problem. God gave me 630 mitzvahs through Moshe Rabbeinu. And he came down. He revealed himself to us. He wants to change it. Let him do it again. That's what they should have said. God came down and did it again. No other religion ever made such a story. It's always God came to me in a desert, on a horse, on a mountain, in a cave. And who saw it? Nobody. At most, at most, according to one version in Christianity, 12 disciples, 12 12 shluchim, 12 emissaries, or even one person. Moshe Rabbeinu knew this. Now look at the beauty of his words. Parshas Veschanon, Perek Dal Pasek Lamed Beis. Extraordinary Pasek. Kisha'al, Moshe Rabbeinu speaking at the end of his life. Kisha'al no liyamim rishoynim. Asher hoyu lefanecha limin hayoyim asher bore Elohim odam ala oretz. Ulu mikzei ha-shamayim ba'at kzei ha-shamayim. Haniyo kadavur ha-godul azaya nishma kamoyu. Ask this question from the earliest days before you, from the day God created man on the earth, from one edge of the heaven to the other edge of the heaven, in other words, throughout the whole planet. Has such a great thing ever happened? Have, has anybody ever heard such a story? Hanishma. Has any nation experienced, heard the voice of God and lived like you? You have been shown to know. Not me. I'm not the man here. I didn't create this. You know. You saw. You saw Hashem There's none beside him. What is Moshe saying here? He says, you will never hear such a story. From one end of history to the other end of history. You know why you'll never hear such a story? You know why Christianity, with all of its traditions, all of its dozens, never said the story? You know why Hinduism not? You know why Far Eastern religions not? Buddhism not? Islam not? Or any other religion that existed or called that religion over thousands of years? You know why nobody said this? Why didn't they say that three million people saw God and He said, He is the prophet? Why? You know why? What do you think? Huh? But why didn't they say it? Why didn't they say it happened? Immediately everybody would know. They're charlatans or they're delusional. Even if you don't want to say they're charlatans, you just say they're delusional. This never happened. I can't tell you all that you were last night in Melbourne, Australia, and God took you on His wings and He brought you to Muncie, New York. In a 30-minute flight from Melbourne, Australia to Muncie, and it happened to you and all your relatives. You know, this guy is crazy. Legally crazy or absolutely just a, just a, a criminal liar. Interesting. There are Indians who claim that the Hindu god, who they call Krishna, addressed millions of warriors. <coughs> wow. Is Moshe right? There are Indians who claim the Hindu god Krishna addressed millions of followers. But there's one little addendum to the story. You know what happened to all the millions of followers? They all died. 
So how do we know God addressed himself to them? Because there was one prophet whom God revealed himself to, and he said, I addressed myself to all of them. Now take a look in Parshas Veschan and look at one word. Pasuk Lamed Gimel. Hashama am koyla lekim edabe metoy chesh kasher shamata ato vayechi. And you remained alive to tell the story. They told it to their children and their grandchildren. And every generation heard it from his, its parents and grandparents. We were there, we saw it, we heard it, we experienced it. So when did the story begin? I ask you. We go back 2100 years with this tradition. Somewhere somebody was brainwashed. What happened? How did this come about? How did they accept it? How did they embrace it? It's ludicrous. It's absurd. We don't have such a precedent in history. People are gullible. But they're gullible to be enticed by something they might think is true. For sure. But something they know for sure is a lie. We don't see this. In the nature, in the nature of people. You'll find a lovely, interesting thing. I once spoke about this at a debate. I cannot say that I, I know every instance, and maybe this is wrong, but from my limited research, you'll find a fascinating thing in history. I don't know of one Jew whoever left the Jewish religion and embraced another religion like Christianity, like Islam, solely because he was persuaded rationally that this is more true than this. Many Jews converted. They didn't want to die. They wanted a job. They seeked opportunity. The pressure was too heavy. The persecution was too agonizing. They needed food. They were desperate. They were hopeless. They never had a Jewish education. They didn't have what to compare it with. But find me a great rabbi, scholar, a man who entrenched himself in Jewish scholarship and knows it all. And from a place of knowledge, he says, you know, I came to a rational realization that this religion has a truth that this doesn't have. We don't have one instance like this in history. Isn't that telling? What about the other way around? Some of our greatest were converts. And they weren't forced to become Jewish. Halachically, we're not allowed to even invite them or even accept them. Our greatest, Rabbi Akiva, his parents were converts. Shmayan Avtalyon. They were the sages of the tradition of the Messiah, the Zugas. Unkolos whom every Jew learns, reads every single week. He wasn't Jewish, he was a convert. Reb Meir, about whom the Talmud says that he was the greatest of all the sages and nobody could understand the depth of his wisdom. Erev and Gimel. Lamed al Reb Meir was a convert. And so in all the generations till today, why did it never happen both ways? It should go this way, it should go this way. There's a reason for it. So when somebody writes an email and says, Judaism and Christianity are on the same plane, that's unfair. You're dealing with a different reality here. Now you might ask me, 
Not anybody wants to ask anything? Okay, so I'll ask on myself. Moshe was a magician. He did a good magic show, and he made them believe that God spoke to them. They weren't lying. He did a good magic show. Koilus lapidim. He had firecrackers, July 4th firecrackers for Independence Day. He made a good show. He had a loudspeaker. I am your God who took you out of Egypt. Wow, wow, wow. It's a primitive time, thousands of years ago. People were primitive. They didn't know if they're coming or they're going. (laughs) Moshe said, he made a circus show. He said, it's God. They meant it. It wasn't a conspiracy. Doesn't mean it was God. It means he was a good magician. What do you think about this question? Somebody emailed me this question. You think it has merit? (laughs) Because you don't want it to have merit. (laughs) I have no problem. Listen. I told the fellow I have no problem. All I ask you is to be intellectually honest and consistent. If three million people see something, in any other instance, would you doubt it? Or you would say it's true? Or it was an optical illusion? You yourself, when you see a bridge, do you drive over the bridge or you say, well, I may be having an optical illusion, I'm going straight into the Hudson. You rely on your eyes, right? I don't mind if you tell me you can't trust eyes. I'm game. You close your eyes, you walk with a dog. Trust the dog's eyes. I have no problem. Trust your wife's eyes. Always better. Guard your eyes. Be consistent. You don't trust eyes. Gesundheit. I don't believe in eyes. I have optical illusions. But everywhere you trust eyes, one story, it's an optical illusion. Be consistent. You want to tell me it was a chizasin? I am fine. Everything is a chizasin. I'm gesundheit. There's no door there, there's a wall there. You should stay here forever. <laughs> there's good food. It's also an achizasenai. Achizasenai means an uh, optical illusion, optical deception. Besides the fact that the three million Jews, nobody doubted that this may have been magic. For the rest of their life, they have to put on filling and not light a fire on Shabbos because of a magic show. Nobody asked. Maybe he's a magician. What? Show me your hands and change their whole life and history based on this. Obviously, in their kishkes, magic has certain limits. Usually we know, we may, be, we may be fooled, but we know there's somebody doing a trick. Here every person experienced, and I don't know what they experienced and how they experienced. I'm not sure Matan Taylor took more than 60 seconds or three minutes. Sarah Sadibras doesn't take too long. Halavai, all rabbi sermons would be as long as Matan Torah, would be wonderful. Maybe more Jews would embrace it. But somehow they all experienced in an immediate way the presence of the essence of the universe, the essence of reality, the DNA behind the DNA, the author of creation, the reality of Hashem. Hashem <laughs> I think there's another very interesting point to mention. Let's say you're fabricating the document. 
and you're the chairman of the board who's in charge of the fabrication. So you're going to come up with a Torah, you're going to give it to the Jews, and you're going to say, this is from God. You're probably going to want to come up with messages that will help them believe that this is from God. But they come up with some very interesting mitzvahs. Number one, once in seven years, you don't plant, you don't plow, you don't sell your fruits, it's ownerless. Everybody, imagine you have a bank account that's completely dedicated to interest. And once in seven years, God says that bank account is open to everybody. So the Jews say, what are we going to eat? What are we going to eat? So don't worry, in the sixth year, there's going to be such abundance you'll have for year six, for year seven, for year eight. You know how long the validity of that Torah is going to last? For six years. (laughs) For six years. Then you say, the king, who wrote? The king has tremendous restrictions. The Kohenites and the Levites who officially fabricated it, tremendous restrictions. They can't even own real estate. Everybody has tremendous restrictions. Three times a year you got to abandon your homes and your assets. You go to Jerusalem and you're going to say the people are going to come and steal it from other countries. I promise you, nobody's getting close to your house. You know how long that Torah would last? The validity of that Torah would last till the next holiday. And then you tell me twice that there's one animal in the world that has split hooves and doesn't chew its cut. One animal in the world. He lists off the animals that you could eat have split hooves and they chew the cud. They regurgitate their food. All the other animals you can't eat, even if they have one sign. But then he specifies the animals that have only one sign. Four that chew their cud and don't have split hooves. One, as hachazir, the pig, who has split hooves but doesn't chew his cud. I ask you a question. If you're fabricating a document in the name of God... 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. How stupid do you have to be to give yourself away? One thing a liar knows, he doesn't know every animal in the world. Didn't even know America existed. Didn't know Australia. Why would you write such a thing? Why give yourself away? In a year they might discover an animal and prove that you're a liar. Why do this? Unless, of course... You have some information from the one who created animals and therefore he knows that 3,000 years later we know thousands upon thousands of species of animals and they're still searching to disprove Moshe Rabbeinu. That there's another animal that has split hooves and doesn't chew its cut. But I want to be a little more skeptical, my dear friends. You'll forgive me for my friends. And I want to say, someone managed to brainwash all Jews at some point in history that the story actually happened. Their parents transmitted it to them. Why did they never hear it from their parents? Because they had time out. Why were they never at the Seder? They slept through. Somebody managed to brainwash them. It was a lie. I, you'll ask all of these questions. Okay, but it happened. It happened this way. It's not enough for me to say this is the word of God, please. I think there's another vital point to remember. Imagine a person, imagine this scenario. Tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning, 
The sun doesn't rise in the east. The sun rises in the west. What do we say now? So all the scientists emerge and they say there has to be something in nature that caused a sudden change. We have to search for the scientific principle, for the scientific law that caused this phenomenon. Is it possible maybe that once in 5,000 years something happens to cause the sun to appear in the west rather than the east? Okay. But now I want to ask you another question. What happens if somebody predicted this a day before? Somebody stood up and said, tomorrow the sun is going to rise in the west. If this happens, can it be a coincidence as well? Can it be that this person just by fluke, by mazel, said the strange thing and it happened? Is it irrational to say that he's privy to some information that nobody else has? But you'll say, you know what? Mazel, it happens. The guy is a nut job. He says crazy things. What do they say? Even a broken clock is right twice a day. So, he happened to be right. But what happens if this occurs again and again? He makes a prediction. It's irrational. It's abnormal. Somebody saying the sun is going to rise in the west tomorrow is absolutely crazy. And it happens again and again. He doesn't say something that's expected, that's regular, that's abnormal. Something that is absolutely irrational and defies common sense. At some point, is it irrational to say that the person is privy to some secret source, he has access to some higher truth? Is it crazy to assume that maybe he's hearing something from the creator of the world? Well, this is not a metaphor. What do I mean it's not a metaphor? It's exactly what happened. Somebody wrote the Torah. And we're assuming that it's somebody. We don't know who the somebody is. Somebody wrote a book at some point, And many Jews decided to believe what it says in the book. The Torah includes many stories that many people will say is fabricated by the person who wrote the book. Now, this person wrote some very, very strange things in the book. All in the name of God. But he didn't only write things that happened. He wrote things that will happen. And not things that will happen that make sense. Things that will happen that are abnormal. And then when you read the book, you're like, you got to be crazy for writing this. It's like me getting up and telling you, trust me, the sun is coming up in the West. Today, some thousands of years later, we look back and we go, wow. First of all, this man who makes the book says that the Jewish people will remain a minority among the nations of the world. They will be singled out for persecution and annihilation. They will be exiled and scattered all over the earth. And while, all, while many other empires will perish, they will outlive all their enemies and survive for eternity. They will never be destroyed. The Lord God will never abandon them. He will never annul His covenant with them. They'll survive. They'll thrive. One day they'll return to their homeland and return to their God. If you were writing a book thousands of years ago, would you write this? Every major empire went down. When was the last time you met in Macy's an Edomite? How about in century 21 a Moabite? Do you know any ancient Egyptians? We are the Persians. We are the Greeks. 
We're the Assyrians. We are the Romans. We are the Byzantines. Where is Sancheiriv, Haman, Nebuchadnezzar, the Pharaohs? Where is Pompeii, Caesar, Caliglia, Adrian, Titus, Vespasian? Where are they? They are in Wikipedia. <laughs> and we are the Jewish people. The Jewish people made Wikipedia. This goes against every premise, every predictable premise in history, sociology, science, and psychology. How do you know this? They're going to survive. Nobody survived. Thousands of years later, the Jews are here and under impossible circumstances. If you just study what happened in the last 80 years of Jewish history, don't go back 3,000 years, the last 80 years of Jewish history, Astounding what happened in the last 80 years. It's simply impossible for somebody to predict that a nation would undergo what our nation underwent in the last few decades. Out of 16 million Jews, 6 million were slaughtered. A third of the Jewish people. Another 2 million were severely traumatized, as some of us know so well. Another few million in slavery in the Soviet Union behind the Iron Curtain under Stalin who could not breathe freely, never mind live as Jews freely. And look what this nation accomplished in the last 60 years. They returned and rebuilt their homeland, Eretz Yisrael. Unprecedented levels of scholarship, religious, secular, Powerful international presence in law and in medicine and politics and science and arts and business. And the biggest thing is the Jewish renaissance. In an extraordinary way, all less than a century, what a nation goes through. A few thousand years ago, a man wrote a book. You will never perish, you will never die. I'm going to create a covenant with you forever, for eternity. Just quoting three of dozens and dozens and dozens of verses. It's like saying the sun is going to rise in the west. This is what you write, how are you going to know? In fact, ten of our tribes disappeared. Like most nations, like some of the greatest empires, all gone, all gone. They're all in the dustbin of history. And the Jews, the same Nudniks who were here three and a half thousand years ago making the world Meshuggah, are still here making the world Meshuggah. Now tell me that it was Mazel. Moses Jefferson made a prediction on Sam Galungan. Okay, a coincidence, it happens. He said the sun is going to rise in the west and it rose in the west. But how many times can this happen until you say, you know what? Maybe the guy who wrote this book had some inside information. Maybe he was taking dictation from the one who orchestrates history, who was in charge of history. Maybe. Here's another statement. God shows you from all the nations. You will become the spiritual ambassadors of God to the world. The representatives of God to the world. The ones who will introduce morality, as Yeshaya Novi says, You'll become a light unto the nations. 
Again, I'm quoting a few verses. This is your wisdom in front of all the nations. On a special covenant, an eternal bond, you will forever be his people, ambassadors to the world. The Torah repeats this not one, not ten, probably a hundred or two hundred times. And now, this is a prediction authored, so to speak, by a man who decided to tell this to a people and get them excited, together with 613 commandments. But now I want you to take a look at a statement, not by a Jew. This is by a non-Jew, his name is Paul Johnson. He wrote a book called The History of the Jews. And this is what he writes. All the great conceptual discoveries of the intellect seem obvious and inescapable once they have been revealed, but it requires a special genius to formulate them for the first time. The Jew has this gift. To them we owe the idea of equality before the law, both divine and human, of the sanctity of life, the dignity of the human person, of the individual conscience and so of personal redemption, of the collective conscience and so of social responsibility, of peace as an abstract ideal and love as the foundation of justice, and many other items which constitute the basic moral furniture of the human mind. Without the Jews, it might have been a much emptier place. Paul Johnson is basically claiming that the greatest gift to the development of humanity were given by the Jews. Today we take them for granted. Then you have an American president, president of the United States, John Adams. I will insist that the Hebrews have done more to civilize man than any other nation. If I were an atheist who believed or pretended to believe that all is ordered by chance, I should believe that chance has ordered the Jews to preserve and propagate to all mankind the doctrine of a supreme, intelligent, wise, almighty sovereign of the universe, which I believe to be the great essential principle of all morality and consequentially of all civilization. That basically there is a source of morality. There's something called right and wrong because there is an author of right and wrong we call God. Even if I'm an atheist, I will say, chance somehow chose the Jews. You have an Irish author, Thomas Cahill has a book, Gifts of the Jews. Listen to his words. Most of our best words, new, adventure, surprise, unique, individual, person, vocation, time, history, future, freedom, progress, spirit, faith, hope, justice, are the gifts of the Jews. Meaning, these words are not concrete realities, they're concepts. It's hard to think of life without this, without hope, without history, without purpose, without individual, without unique. These are all inventions of the Torah, of the Jewish people. These are not Jews speaking. These are three non-Jews speaking. So now we have to ask a question. Can we say that a band of ex-slaves who chose to fabricate a book at some point managed to change civilization the way we know it, and they predicted it in the book. They introduced, the, listen what they did, they introduced the moral God creator that we know of. They wrote the world's most influential book, the Bible. They created ethical monotheism. They became the only civilization to deny the cyclical worldview and give humanity belief and purpose in linear history. 
They provided morality-driven prophets. They introduced the concept of morality, good and evil. They gave the world the Ten Commandments. They introduced the concept of absolute and radical human dignity. They said that humans are carved in the divine image. They invented the idea of human freedom. They invented the dream of Mashiach, of a world living in peace and tranquility without war and envy. Without the Jews, there would be no Christianity. There would be no Islam. Not a bad idea. Which today number half the human race. A few million ex-slaves transformed the globe. And the book predicted it. The Torah predicted it from day one. They defined what their mission was. They stated it clearly, all in the name of God. How can they know such a coincidence? What happened? How can you predict what's going to happen with millions and millions of people and how you will affect billions and billions of people around the globe over a few thousand years? It also seems fascinating to me, I should say. Jews, we know, have always been an inquisitive people. Ours is a religion that encourages questions. Every great rabbi was ready to take on every challenge in his day. And yet, there's a fascinating thing about the Jews, and that is the way they clung tenaciously to their heritage with such sacrifice. That generation which fabricated the book gave it over to their children and sacrificed their lives for it over thousands of years, scattered across the globe in impossible circumstances, always as a minority, maintaining something that's not even true. For what? For when? For where? So if it's a nation that's brainwashed from day one, okay. People can be brainwashed to do anything. Nursing their mother's milk, you can put into that milk anything. But a nation on one hand that is self-critical, that doesn't stop asking questions, isn't encouraged to ask questions. Doesn't that tell us that for them, this was worth sacrificing for, because it was the truth, it was the ultimate truth. They knew that this is the ultimate truth that will ultimately prevail in reality. And I think on a final note, it's worth to conclude this. In science, whenever you want to determine what are the essential factors that allow for any entity or substance to endure throughout extreme circumstances, you always have to look at the permanence, at the stable, at that which is stable. Things that come and go obviously cannot explain the power of endurance because sometimes they're there, they're not. You can't attribute to them the reason for endurance. You have to look what are the essential components, the fundamental elements that always accompany this entity to that, perhaps, you can attribute the explanation for its survival in extreme circumstances. This is basic scientific method, and we understand why it's rational. People always ask the question, how did the Jews survive? Why did the Jews survive? It's a good question. Let's say you're talking to somebody who doesn't believe anything. Granted, but ask one scientific question. We have been around for thousands of years. Can we point to one factor that accompanied the Jewish people from the day we became a nation 
until this very night that I address you tonight, is there one feature that was there with the Jewish people throughout the world, throughout history? And perhaps if we can find something that was always there, we could say, ah, we got the code. So let's understand it. The first thing you would say contributes to the survival of a people is a country. You have a country. You live in a country and you defend the country. Can we say that about our people? The reason we're alive, while everybody, so many empires are gone, is because we had one country to unite us. What's the answer to that? Sadly not. We know that most of our history, we have been exiled to every corner of the world, outside of our homeland, outside of our country. Even today, when thank God, six million, close to six million, six million Jews live in our country, in our homeland, half the Jew, more than half the Jewish people live elsewhere. You could say, okay, not a country, but we had a strong army to protect us. We had a strong military that was always there watching us, protecting us for 3,000 years, and that's why we're here. Is that true? Sadly, thank God today the Jewish people have an army. Bechazdei Hashem. For most of our history, we did not have that. Defenseless. Sadly, sadly, defenseless. That was not a permanent factor for most of our history. So you might say, you know what kept us? Language. We had a common language, a sprach. And the language kept the people together. Is that the case? For most of our history, most Jews didn't even speak Hebrew, Lashon Kodesh. Jews adopted the native language. For one point, one point is Aramaic, Arabic, Ladino, Spanish, German, Yiddish. Till today, most Jews can't even speak Hebrew. And this was true about most of our history. Perhaps it was culture. People have a culture. And the culture kept us intact. It made sure we survived. Is that the case? The fact is Jewish culture changes every few decades, and Jewish communities develop different cultures based on where they live. Ask a Sephardi, what's gefilte fish? Ask an Ashkenazi, what's chug? Till 20 years ago, Jews didn't know what sushi is. Today there's no chalois of a bar mitzvah. You don't become bar mitzvah, there's no kiddushin if there's no sushi at the Kabbalah's Pana. Never mind Chinese food. They say there was a Chinaman arguing with a rabbi who's the oldest civilization. So the Chinaman said, we're 4,000 years old. The rabbi said, we're 5,000 years old. We come from Adam and Eve. He said, it can't be. The rabbi said, why not? He said, what do you guys eat for 1,000 years? There was no low main. So not a country, and not an army, and not a language, and not a culture. So now I ask one question. Is there, perhaps not, is there one component that accompanied the Jewish people from the day they became a nation? In every country, in every milieu, in every situation, in good times and bad times, under all circumstances. Is there one feature that we could point and say, this was with the Jewish people from the beginning? Yes or no, and what is it? The answer is there's one feature and it's clear. No historian can doubt this. The greatest atheist can doubt it. And that is the Torah and the mitzvahs that the Jewish people learned and lived 
for 3,300 years. From New Zealand to Finland, from Brazil to Japan, from the former Soviet Union to Hungary to North America to South America, Europe, Asia, in every country and in every city, for 3,300 years during good times and bad times, times of victory and times of defeat, times of triumph, and in the valley of tears, there was the Torah that they learned, and the mitzvahs that they celebrated and observed in daily life, to the point of self-sacrifice, that is the one exclusive, exclusive. If you would have two or three, now you have a question, which is fundamental and which is circumstantial. When you have all other features that are circumstantial, even if important and wonderful, but one that was always there and only one, there's nothing else that you could point to as a common denominator, a common threat through Jewish history. Even the most rational skeptic has to say, I may understand how, I may not understand how, but I can't deny the rational conclusion that somehow in this, in this lay the secret of eternity, in this lay the key to understand how they not only survived, how they thrived. I may not understand how a Torah, how a Tefillin, how a Shabbos, how Kashrus, Mezuzah, Tzdok, and Mikveh can contribute to survival. It's a good question. It's a separate discussion. But I can't deny the fact that the other nations had everything. They had countries and military powers and <coughs> culture and certainly language, but this they didn't have. This was the gift of the Jews. And when we look at history without bias, without preconceived notions, it's obviously this is the feature of eternity. How is it the feature of eternity? Because it was given to the Jewish people by the author of eternity. Have a wonderful week. Elisha ben Avuya didn't go to another religion. He became a secular person. I said another religion. Yeah, yeah. A person becomes yeah, secular, yeah, yeah, doesn't have limitations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't speaking, it's fine, you can move it on. Okay, and what about, what about, what about, uh, you understand? Yeah, 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 but what about, uh, Bjergen came God, give one Nazi Deutsch? It's Turkey. It's an andere, it's an andere Sach, no? Yeah, he's a Yiddishkeit Kofi, that's a Teirish of Alpeh, that's an andere Scheibe. Yeah. What's Teirish of Alpeh? That's not what's under Schmutz. Yeah, yeah. By the debates, there were people who converted because there was terrible pressure. They were threatened. No, not one. Not one. There was tremendous pressure. There was Sakonis Nefoshis. And there was tremendous opportunity. If you became a Christian, the world was paradise. You keep your house, you keep your money, you're elevated to high levels. Huh? People want to live, right? That I could understand. The surprise is that so many didn't. Most didn't. Those that did, they did. I was more lesser than that. I was uh, reviewing all the other ones. Um, so, uh, how do you explain 
let's say, what would the Pope say, or the people high up in the church, or how do you have millions, like you said, billions of Hindus and Muslims and Christians, like, do they don't, do they really believe, or what do they, what do they? Listen, you're born with something, there's a lot of positive elements to their faith. God, remember, it's based on Judaism, so there's a lot of truth. But Christianity, God created you and loves you and all that. So there's a lot of great stuff. There's some stuff that are not, are not rational. He has a book, Permission to Believe and Permission to Receive. The Kuzaria, the Rambam, the Kuzaria. Why are their religions bigger? Well, Jews were always told not to proselytize, not to try to convert people. Number one. And number two, uh, the truth is always Right. Sometimes, uh, you know, the truth is not always popular. Right? Yo. Moshe wasn't in the table. No, but he looked. He said, "I must have some information that's from somewhere that's not from the shepherd." That's what he was trying to say. How is it possible to know? But that story comes from Moshe. That's the answer. And that's Alain is the Chanes. So you want to say? Yeah. And also that itself is unique. Chayra. No, all their children went in. The children were there. Whoever was under 20 by Maimed Harsinai survived. No, what do you mean? But then it came back right away. No, it was a momentary experience. Who told whom? Well, apparently they felt that they expired. You feel you're passing out. And then they came back with all the same memories. Yeah, it was a momentary thing. But the whole generation, all the children survived, all the women survived. All the women survived. The women didn't die. Anybody who was under 20 lived. So first of all, 40 years they were together, and then they went in. The people that went into the land of Israel, many of them were there. They saw it all. They were older. They were, they were already 60, 50 or 60, whatever. Yeah. That's a good question. That's an excellent question. First of all, it's an excellent question. Where did they have three million pairs of tefillin a day after Matan Torah? Okay. It's obvious that when Torah says to do something, yeah, so it wasn't given to angels. So when Torah is telling you to do it, it's telling you to do it in a way that you should be able to do it. Right? So as long as they had to find, the, get the animals and make the hide and write the tefillin, it was fine. 
They had to prepare for it. Not, they were mechuyif to prepare for it. You understand? Lamashal is a mitzvah tashbisu. Right? Erev Pesach midday, you have to eliminate your chametz. So what does it mean? It means 12 o'clock, that second all the chametz has to be destroyed? No. Not hefker. Tashbisu. Erev Pesach midday. You know the halacha of Tashbisu? Minat Torah, not Medirabana. You know the halacha? So let me tell you the halacha. The halacha is Erev Pesach in the afternoon. You have to destroy all the chametz. When? When, you know? By Chatzos. Midday. Let's say 12 o'clock, if that's Chatzos. So it's 12 o'clock. Till 12 o'clock, I don't have to do anything. 12 o'clock, I have to destroy the chametz. Let's say it takes me two hours to destroy the chametz. That's fine. As long as I'm involved in getting rid of the chametz, it's fine. The Torah says, from Chatzos, you have to be mashbis. If it takes you an hour, it takes you an hour. If it takes him a week to write film, it takes him a week. No, minatayda not. Ach rishon tashbisu from chatzos. From chatzos at chatzos you start hashbasa. Medirabanan this man is before we do bdika the night before we do bittel we do beer we do a lot of things. I'm talking minatayda tashbisu. This from chatzos. So if it took a month or six months, so they didn't put for six months. There's no record. There's a famous question, how the Jews put on tefillin? In tefillin you have four parshas. Two parshas is Kaddish, V'hoyuki, V'yachos, and parshas boy. But two parshas is Shema, V'hoyim, Shemoy, is parshas V'eschana. Parshas V'eschana was said 40 years later. So what they put in their tefillin? That's the question. That's the real question. That's what the Rajabah asks in Menachas. What they put in the bottom? Two parshas weren't written. So there's Rishonim who say they didn't put on tefillin in the Midbar. They only put it in there to Israel. But most, many disagree. Some say they, 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 they're parshies. They had something, they only had two parshies in the tefillin. Two, two of the bottom were empty. Okay, it's a separate shmuz, but uh, it's an sugi. But you understand what I'm saying? You have a yesoid. Chinuch is a mitzvah mit rabbana, not minatayra. So what are you supposed to do minatayra when you become a mitzvah if you didn't have chinuch? Huh? What's the answer? You start then, and as long as you're preparing, you're good. Stay. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.